Welcome to Read All About It with me, Nuri Vitachi. And me, Shusi. As always, we've got two recent releases and a classic. And it's my turn to start this time. So I've brought along The Wind Up Girl, which is a biopunk science fiction novel. Uh, although that doesn't really sum it up very well. Um, this book came out a, a few years ago. It was uh, 2010. And it blew everybody away, despite the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a new author with a, a debut novel. And the reason why it blew everyone away is that it's so unlike anything else. It's a, it's a, it's a genre-bending novel. It's science fiction, but it's also a, a very deep uh, literary novel. Won every prize going, but let me tell you a bit about the plot. It starts off with a guy called Anderson, and he's in a market in Thailand, a street market, and he buys a strange fruit and tastes it, and he goes mad with excitement. The reason is that it's actually set in 23rd century Thailand, where global warming has destroyed the, the water systems, the, um, the food systems, and wars have broken out, uh, as, as people predict might actually happen. So this is more than just exotic fruit. This is exotic fruit zapped into the future with God knows what else. This might, yeah, exactly. This might be the last food because there are wars now over the remaining calories on planet Earth. Oh, no. Yes, that's right, because uh, <laughs> wars over food and wars over water. And uh, so what he is, he's a geneticist and he's looking for genes that can grow new foods. He, he's found one in Thailand. Aha. So it's a very thoughtful novel and it feeds into all our fears. I mean, the Earth does seem to be running out of fresh water and running out of uh, of food. So um, all these, these, these wars could actually happen. So does he actually find anything? Well, it gets more complicated than that because uh, one of the reasons why it's such a good book is it's, it's very believable in that Anderson, who seems like a hero looking for, for, for new uh, genetic sources of food, is actually a villain because he works for the biotech companies, what they call the calorie companies, and he wants to corner the market in this new type of food so that uh, his company can basically, um, you know, make billions of dollars. Um, and so, in a sense, everybody in this uh, novel is a bad guy. It's, a, it's set in a world like today where um, business rules and we pretend it doesn't, but in fact, it always does. It so this is futuristic does. junk food that he's going to produce for us, is it? Well, except it's the only food. It's the only food because there's, a sh there's, there's less food than there are uh, humans in the planet in the 23rd century. That's the, the concept. Um, the, the other thing that makes this book special is that it's set in Asia, which is, which is really nice. But it's set in a very, very real Asia. I mean, the, the characters have names like uh, Jaidi, Rojana, Sukchai, and things like that, which are real Thailand uh, names. Somdet Chayal Praya. So he's actually been to Asia and he's sucked up Asia and he recreates Asia uh, uh, beautifully. It's also... Uh, uh, a novel that uh, beat different genres. I mean, you expect a, a sci-fi novel to win the Hugo, of course. Of course, yes. Which uh, every, everyone, you sort of have to win the Hugo. And it did win the Hugo. But it also won uh, other awards not in the sci-fi category. And it was in the top 10 best books uh, of the year uh, from from Time magazine. So, oh. it, so it's very rare that sci-fi books actually make it into that literary Category. So it has sort of popular appeal as well as literary appeal then. Yeah, that's right. And it's a, it's a 
difficult thing to do. I remember when, do you remember when Amitav Ghosh visited us in yes, Hong Kong? Yes, of course. <laughs> now, he started off as a sci-fi novelist. That's right. And he yeah. won the Hugo and the Nebula and all mm. that. But he hides them. <laughs> and on, his, on the back of his book, he doesn't mention that. Because sci-fi is considered a, you know, a sort of low-class category. I know, but with titles like the Calcutta Chromosome. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. that was, was that his first? That's one of his books, yes. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. If it, I don't think it was his first. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so uh, this was unusual in a, in t- to have a, a book like this uh, crossing the, the genres. Now, um, uh, the, the author, who I haven't mentioned yet, for a very good reason, and that his name is almost unpronounceable. It is Paolo Bacigalupi. Uh, but just look up the wind-up girl on the uh, on the internet if you want to to track down this book. Paolo uh, Bacigalupi wrote this as his debut novel, uh, which meant that he was immediately um, held as a genius who wins multiple awards with their their debut novel. Uh, but he did. He's just come out with a new one called The Water Knife, which is set just a few decades in the future. So it's also very edgy and worrying because it's specifically about the fresh water crisis that is about to happen uh, in the next few decades. That's right. It's it's right upon us, isn't it? And, and that's probably one of the subjects you see very often in creative writing classes when people want to write sci-fi. It's always about, you know, the end of water. There is actually a, a whole genre of literature, I think, growing up about the current crises, mm-hmm. uh, food shortages, uh, water problems. Uh, the, the, uh, I, I recommend Wind Up Girl before The Water Knife, though. Um, uh, for one thing, it's a, uh, well, it's, a, it's, a more, it's a more general read, it's a more exciting read, whereas The, the Water Knife is, is very specific on one subject and, it, and it's all set in one corner of the US where the water's completely run dry. But the, the title's curious, The Wind-Up Girl. What is the girl here? Yeah, the um, one of the experiments they, that the, the, the gene companies make is they decided artificial intelligence is too hard, so they grow uh, they grow a type of human, a genetically modified organism that looks like human for purposes of slavery and sex. Of course, yes. And <laughs> What else do we make humans for? And uh, one of the girls escapes, one of these artificial, genetically modified organism girls escapes, and he meets her in the market with the fruit. Wow. And uh, the three of them, uh, he, he, she knows where the fruit comes from, and so he needs her. And to get the information out of her, he says, I know a place where there's a colony of escaped genetic organisms like you, and you can be safe. Aha. <laughs> so then the two of them become sort of partners. Sort of friends, partners. Do we ever get a sense of what the fruit might look like or what it might be? Yeah, it looks like uh, it's described. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably like something like a lychee uh-huh. or, or something in, in that category, furry and strange. Um, but it does. it's one of those books that worries you because you think, yeah, this is this scary is happen, and this it? might actually happen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, And considering the water shortage is, is the title of his, the, the subject of his next book, clearly he thinks the world's going to be a very bad place pretty soon. Yes. Is he also a scientist by any chance or anything like that? Uh, I don't actually know much about his uh, background. He, I know he started as a, 
uh, a children's book author. He's oh, done several okay. young adult novels. But the, the level of sort of science in this book suggests that um, he's done some, uh, some serious mm-hmm. uh, reading in science. And also in business, because the way the oh. uh, the uh, the politics on the novel work. He's an agri... Uh, Anderson, the main character, is an agri-gen representative. Agri-gen, that yeah, sounds... Genetics, yes. agriculture. And you can just hear this as as real. You can just feel this. You can even see the really logo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. So uh, so a great a great read. Um, it's, a, it's a science fiction uh, novel for those who perhaps don't like science fiction and like something a bit more literally literary. And anyway, I think that the genre science fiction is sort of often a mislabeling of books because, I mean, it's just a book that is futuristic sometimes, you know. That's right. That's a very good point. In fact, there was a discussion about exactly that a few years ago and people wanted to get rid of the term science fiction, but uh, how to re- replace it? Uh, and the most popular alternative was speculative. Speculative is the one I hear yeah. a lot, yes. Because it means really that it's just fiction where you let your imagination go. But that uh, sounds like all fiction, doesn't it? Yeah, Ex- except it's uh, it's also about society and the universe and how how reality works. Yeah, but could we really survive without these labels? I mean, would we not? Would we be able to like just take a book and go, oh, okay, we'll just enter it as a book no matter what? Yes. I think um, the that's always the 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 wish of artistic people. I mean, we're both yeah, writers, so we like to just just do our story, it's just my story, and not here. label it. But uh, we have to be realistic. And people, publishers buy genre books. They Absolutely. buy books because it's science fiction yes. or it's romance. So, uh, and writers know this. So we write books and we label them. Sounds like this book would have really wide appeal. That's the sense I get listening to you talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's certainly exciting, except for one thing. Because it's literary, it's rather, it's downbeat, and you can't ever expect the, you know, a, a hero figure to actually win at any stage. And you're never sure whether the girl will find her, her, her destiny. I see. So, it's, so rather, it's, so it's rather sad. Sad in the end, okay. So that's my choice for this week, and it's called The Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. My book today is also a debut novel, uh, which came out a couple of years ago in 2013, and it is The Unchangeable Spots of Leopards by Christopher, with a K, Jansma. So we're both doing um, debut novels debut by novels. slightly unpronounceable Yes, writers. exactly. <laughs> now, here has to be, and it's interesting too, although the, the book is quite different from the one you brought, it certainly falls into the category of what we call highly speculative, because this is the most unreliable narrator possible in a debut novel. Okay, it's a first-person protagonist and somewhat reminiscent of, you know, Frank Abagnale, the protagonist of the book and film Catch Me If You Can. So somebody who's who's sort of a scam artist, you know. And this is a kind of scam artist too, but it's a novel about the writing of fiction. Now, what could be more of a scam artist than a fiction writer, right? (laughs) It's readable, it's funny, at times it's heartbreaking. So here's the setup. It opens in Terminal B, the domestic terminal at Raleigh Airport in North Carolina. And uh, the opening line is, I've lost every book I've ever written. So our protagonist is a young boy. He's unnamed. He remains unnamed throughout, but we get a lot of other names for him. Uh, he's waiting after school and on all, also on vacations for his single mom, who's a flight attendant. And, you know, she comes back from her flight. The shops at the terminal are sort of his daycare. 
And so he, he becomes very friendly with all the vendors, especially the bookstore owner. Now, um, so on it's his eighth birthday, and his mother takes him to Terminal A for the first time, the international terminal, and he's really excited about this. And they go to see Mr. Bjorn of the 10-minute timepiece repair, and she buys him a watch for his birthday. So after that, he starts going weekly to Terminal A, and he really likes hanging around Mr. Bjorn because he notes that this guy is the classy guy. He wears a suit. He's the only one who comes in in a suit. And then he starts writing his first book. It's called The Pink Packet Thieves. And it's about a brother and sister from Paris. You can see sort of where this is going. Who steal all the artificial sweetness in pink packets from the airport. And then there's a, a hero who's a boy detective who lives in a trash can. And he, he comes out and he tries to become the hero because he, he wants to catch these thieves. So he does, and it sort of makes him a little bit of a hero with the airport police. But then the story has a twist because at the end, the detective and the thieves become friends. And then they sell all the pink packets on the black market and they retire rich. <laughs> so the book becomes a real hit with all the women travelers who transit through the airport. And so he brings the book to Mr. Bjorn to read. And so this is what Mr. Bjorn says to him. A book, he laughed and set it down. Sounds like someone wants to live forever. So in a way, it's sort of a comment right there about what it is and why we write. You know, what's the point of putting something down in fiction and in a story? And I, I thought that that was one of those lines that really jumped out at me. It sounds fascinating. Um, now, you mentioned he was an unreliable narrator, which means that it's a first-person story, and we're not quite sure of the exact truth of what's being delivered. Right. It's filtered through a personality. How does that work in this novel? Well, it, this is where it becomes really interesting. So at this point now, um, so he goes back to see Mr. Bjorn, but Mr. Bjorn dies of a heart attack right there and then, and he never gets to read the book. And then the policeman says, oh, what's this book he sees it and then all the vendors say oh it's this boys and they start telling um the policeman the story of the boys like yeah his mother just leaves him here like it's daycare free daycare and then the policeman says and there's no father and now everyone starts snickering and laughing and it's like oh yeah 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 what you know what father and and the boy's horrified and he runs away and that ends the prologue um and now we move ahead in time and he's a young boy, a young man, I mean, um, in college, working in, um, as a, a waiter in a, like a country club. And he manages to scam his way into becoming the escort for a debutant. And you can see he's kind of a literary Gatsby. He wants to rise in the world. And he makes up a new name for himself. He makes up a history for himself. Um, and he just does this and takes this girl into the, into the ball. Um, and... That's the sort of setup for the next part of it. So the novel sort of spans through a lot of different sections. Um, on the one hand, he has this unrequited love for this girl from high society that he doesn't fit into. Um, he also begins writing all these other books and all the manuscripts get lost. Um, and in each, and you know, in some of the chapters, you're, you're just given a fragment of a manuscript. In another chapter, you're sort of given um, a set that the setup is like a writing workshop, and you know there's this unnamed person sort of sort of workshopping his work with somebody else. Um, and we move back and forth in real and fictional time. We learn a little bit about the background of the the, the flight attendant mother, um, and then we also get the background of some fictional character. So the I changes because you're never quite sure who's telling you the story it's always a storyteller of some kind 
That could be that could be very frustrating, though. Could it? Could it? Well, some of the critics have, you know, it, it got very good reviews from a lot of people. I mean, he was hailed as like this brilliant new writer, and it's like we all have to look out for this guy. Um, but yeah, you know, there is this other side of it where it's kind of like, yeah, it gets a little tedious because we keep moving around. It's a little bit too meta sometimes for people, I think. Um, because you also get the sort of typical young writer story. You know, there's a tumultuous love affair in one section. We have writing in exotic and not so exotic places because he does travel around the world. You know, he's gotten the travel bug from his mom in a way, you know. Um, and then he's at one point in a writer's colony that looks a little bit like an insane asylum <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in Europe. Yeah. yeah. How, does he, how does he make his living? Is well, he also in you're the not really told that. You know, you're sort of seeing this guy, so because you you never know who he is. The the who or the the protagonist or the actor in the drama at any given moment could be a fictional character in in one of his novels. You assume at other times it seems to be him traipsing through looking for um, um, this woman that he's so much in love with. Um, and then we also have the watch that his mother gives him, which sort of loops around in time and comes back at the end of the book it appears again but it's found by the woman who was the woman he wanted to you know marry or you know, that he was so in love with only now she's like this grown-up woman and she finds this watch so it's all totally impossible things and people move through space and time in ways that make it's very hard to track and it makes no sense at all. But somehow when you're reading it, you're just like sucked into the story of it all in kind of the way that Catch Me If You Can is, you know. And I, I was reminded very much of Catch Me If You Can when I read this. We're really talking about metafiction, aren't we? I mean... Yes, we are. Yeah. And, it, you know, which is a kind of writing, a, a fiction that is ri writing about the writing of fiction, which is what this is. Because at the end of it, you, you realize he's kind of showing you what it takes to create fiction on the one hand and the, the slippery, you know, line between reality and fiction, because the, the reality, of course, is the what we think of as the real life of this writer, but it keeps shifting always because he lives so much in his fiction. Yes, uh, it sounds fascinating. Meta is uh, is Greek, I think, isn't it? For outside or beyond. Outside or beyond or above, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's experimental. I think perhaps the first metafiction novel might have been Pale Fire by Nabokov. That's uh, one of the ones. Yeah, well, um, yeah, well actually, Lawrence Stern, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. yeah. Yes, going back there too. Um, but yes, uh, Pale Fire is a really good example. So you're given you're given elements of a story, and you kind of have to work it out yourself. Yes, you so, do. So it's for readers who who like to do a little bit of work, and generally readers do like to do a bit of work. I think they do, and I mean, of course, you know, he, the more I describe the novel, it's pretty obvious that one of the the real target reader would be the writer, of course, you know, trying to see themselves in this as well, you know. In a way, I sort of think of this as metafiction on steroids because it goes so far out. Um, but there's another side to it that's also very touching and, and sweet, too. It's a kind of Bildungsroman. It's mm. a kind of coming-of-age novel, mm. you know. Again, so he's playing with sort of classic forms, if you like. Um, but here's this kind of illegitimate boy, um, and he's sort of wanting to escape his origins. This is why this need to be so Gatsby-like and hang out in high society or, or crave and desire this this girl who, you know, clearly the, the parents of this girl will never accept him as a, as a potential uh, suitor for their daughter. <laughs> 
So today I've been talking about the unchangeable spots of leopards by Christopher with a K Jansma, which came out a couple of years ago. And so on to our classic. Uh, the classic this week is Journey to the West, which is a, a Chinese novel uh, published in the 1500s and uh, known by various other names, such as it was main, mainly known as Monkey, I think, in the West. Yeah, because of Arthur Whaley's translation, which is not the complete, not the complete novel, but that's how it was first popularized in English. The complete novel is uh, is a hundred chapters, <laughs> yeah, with, with vast numbers of characters. So, uh, so the the the, the trimmed down version is, uh, is is better known in the West, I think. I think so, yeah. Um, but it but it's a fabulous um, read, isn't it? I mean, th- we've seen so many versions of this. It makes a great comic book, of course. It's the classic children's story in many ways because Monkey goes on so many adventures. Yeah, it's uh, it's also uh, important to remember that it's uh, it's it's set in it's based in fact, rooted in fact. So um, I mean, the story really is uh, about a monk called Xuanzang who uh, who travelled, who realised that the the scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures in uh, in China at that time were imperfect. So he decides to travel to the West, which means to to India in those days. And uh, and what really happened was when he got there, he saw Hanuman, which was a strange monkey god that the, the Hindus worshipped. And he came back with the scriptures and these, these ancient tales, uh, and they all got jumbled up. And uh, they became this novel in which instead of visiting a monkey god, he was accompanied by, by the monkey, monkey god. god that's right. Yeah. So it's not being shared yeah. between India and China. In that sense. Yeah, which is, it was a very transnational novel in a way. Um, and the thing that why it's always been my favorite of the Chinese classics. It's because it's a defiant journey. Because um, in, in the original story, you know, it is based on historical events. Swan Zhang was actually um, defying the emperor's travel ban at the time by going there. But um, he comes back and then he's welcomed back as a hero. But he does go away for three years to visit all the important Buddhist pilgrimage sites. This is the actual thing. And, and the emperor actually funded the building of the big wild goose pagoda <laughs> to store the scriptures that he brought back. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful story, both in, in real and in in fictional form. Uh, I actually wrote a book about this book uh, for you? kids. Yeah, yeah, it's called the the Magic Mirror, the the Scroll Quest, because mm. he was looking for a scroll. The scrolls, yeah. Um, well, that's a good point you brought up. I mean, this adaptation you've done, you know, um, because, you know, who these days is willing to read something from the 16th century, do you think? It does need to be uh, trimmed down and uh, and made palatable. But there's lots of good stuff in there. Like, for example, you know, his destination uh, where he found the uh, scriptures is actually Nalanda University. And that was the first ever residential university on the planet. And it's so, uh, you know, people always talk to me about, oh, Cambridge is 800 years old and, you know, Oxford yeah, really? is 1100. <laughs> well, Nalanda University... Um, uh, it lasted for centuries and it actually sort of died out around 1100 when Cambridge and Oxford were just getting going. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're talking about really ancient, valuable information here. And also as literature, it remains a you know, perennial classic in Chinese literature. You can't study Chinese literature and not read Monkey. Yeah. I mean, it would be impossible. <laughs> and I mean, uh, in, it, it's also um, something that 
it's a bit like Shakespeare. We're not really sure who the author is. I mean, it's generally a, attributed to Wu Chang'an, but yeah. it's not certain. It's nothing like his normal stuff. Um, that, that's it, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But it's a, it also works as an allegory because you've got a sort of Buddha god figure who gives Xuanzang this, 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 this uh, job. Go and do this, and he's kind of watching over him, so this is allegory. And then these three companions he's got the monkey the the, the half pig, pig yeah. uh, you know the magic horse he's, he's got three companions and a, and a horse and um they are sort of uh, atoning for their sins by accompanying him on this difficult journey so you've got all these it's almost like pilgrim's progress this sort of religious kind of, analogy yeah. running well it's religion but a palatable form of religion, I think, so that it makes for a great... It's a great adventure story because, I mean, you know, you think about Monkey, you know, he's born out of this stone, right? So he's like this magical mm-hmm. being. And when he's born, he already has a certain mm-hmm. amount of superpowers, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have all the superpowers. And here is the Monkey God who would be the real God. Um, and he, you know, he goes, he gets invited up to the heavens mm-hmm. and he thinks, oh, good, now I'm going to be a real God. And they make him basically the stable keeper (laughs) and he's like totally insulted and so he goes on a rampage against the heavens and that's kind of like all right enough and they sort of get buddha to like slow him down and buddha just kind of takes him in his hand basically he can't escape from the palm of buddha and he's in prison for so several centuries until it's time for him to go and accompany suang Zhong on a journey to the west yes and then there's a lovely uh, moral ending where Xuan Zheng, you know, he, he's wondering who's putting all these obstacles in his way, uh, this bad guy. And he climbs up the mountain to get the scroll and the, the bad guy reveals himself and it's actually Buddha. Because, uh, <laughs> because it's, so it's a moral lesson that the horrible things that happen to you are actually good. God yes. never wastes pain. The pain you suffer <laughs> is actually refining your personality. So very deep in that sense. And also, of course, monkey is a moral tale for kids. It's kind of like, you know, you be bad and you'll be like monkey. You'll have a headband around you that, you know, you, every time you, you start to be, become bad, you'll be like, you know, in pain. You get this terrible headache. That's really like a modern superhero thing, isn't it? Kind sort of, of like, that's yeah. Superman's kryptonite, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Sort of... Monkey, to me, is always like the first superhero in some ways. Yes, <laughs> and he's the first anti-hero. He's a bit more like Spider-Man than yeah, Superman, he perhaps. Is. He's sort of half yeah. good and a bit naughty at the mm-hmm. same time. And I, and I guess what we've been talking about shows that how a 16th century novel can actually be relevant to, to, to us even today. Sure, yeah. And we began today by talking about The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi and The Unchangeable Spots of Leopards by Christopher Jansma. That's all for this week's edition of Read All About It. Join us next week.